Hello, this is John Cork of the Ian Fleming Foundation, and welcome to audio commentary track one of Live and Let Die. We will be listening on this track to director Guy Hamilton and many of his cast and crew from the film, including Jane Seymour, Yafit Koto, Julius Harris, Madeline Smith, Clifton James, David Hedison, supervising art director Sid Kane, co-art director Peter Lamont, and special effects supervisor Derek Meddings. The stories you are about to hear reflect personal recollections and opinions of those who provided the interviews. Some comments have been edited for time and clarity, and some of these interviews were recorded on location, which may affect the sound quality. They are not meant to provide the definitive history of the film. Now to Guy Hamilton, who will tell us how a little espionage helped with the set for the United Nations. It was rather fun getting into the United Nations building, which we were able to do quite easily because United Nations weren't in session. And so we got in there and took photographs because we were going to reproduce this in studio. And lying around on one of the desks was the ground plans, which the electricians had been using to rewire something. And uh, so we, you know, pinched those quite happily and walked away, and uh, they were very useful too. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't miss them, but if we were trying to bomb or do something terrible to the United Nations, it was very easy to get in. The opening sequence is a bit of a throwback to the first two Bond films, Dr. No and From Russia With Love, both directed by Terence Young. In both of those films, the pre-title teaser does not feature James Bond. Rather, they introduce us to the villain's organization, which is what happens here with the death of three British agents. More on this sequence in a moment, but let's hear Guy Hamilton tell us a little about the background to this next scene, the real jazz funerals, which are an important part of black culture in New Orleans. The jazz funerals, as you know, are a total part of New Orleans and the interesting thing is that you can't have one. It is the people themselves that decide that you were a good guy and you should have a jazz funeral. And you will get the barber on the corner or a newspaper, an old newspaper seller, and everybody chips in to pay for it. Uh, you can be the richest man in town, but no way will you have a jazz funeral if they don't like you. Let's meet the film's supervising art director, Sid Kane. Kane disliked the title of production designer and avoided it. He worked on Dr. No with Ken Adam and then designed sets for From Rush With Love and On Her Majesty's Secret Service before working on Live and Let Die. Here he explains one of the more intriguing yet simple effects in the film. You know, that's where we did the funeral sequence. And the only thing we had to do there was uh, to get a a coffee from an undertaker's and take the bottom off and then make handholds inside and footholds for that uh, for the stunt man to grab hold of when the coffin was placed over. Let's hear Guy Hamilton's memories of this next scene. This was Pinewood and Jeffrey Holder, who 
who was also a great dancer, as you know, staged all the dancing. The unfortunate thing is that this man, I didn't, didn't know that he had to face a snake and he, he was terrified of snakes and absolutely passed out. And the person who really hated snakes was um, Jeffrey Holder and Baron Samedi. The distinctive main titles for a Bond film, as well as the title song, have long been highly anticipated by audiences. Guy Hamilton tells us of his memories of the song and titles for Live and Let Die. Maurice Binder having his fun and games. Was an open book. You used to say, live and let live. The picture hadn't started, and we were in New Orleans preparing. And um, Harry Saltzman came one day and he said, uh, I've got um, a sound studio, you've got to come along and listen. I've got a tape of music I want you to listen to. And it was one of the few little recording studios in New Orleans that had eight track or something like that, and loaded up and yelled away with this tremendous arrangement of Live and Let Die, complete with vocals. Care of Paul McCartney. And Harry said, what do you think? And I said, well, it's not exactly my bag, but coming from Paul McCartney, one would be absolutely idiotic not to use it. He said, you know, well, that's what I think. He paid himself for the orchestra. He got George Martin to orchestrate it and conduct the session and sent this uh, magnificent piece of the and we subsequently, I got on very well with George Martin, who did a, a wonderful job orchestrating um, Live and Let Die throughout the picture and the incidental music along the way, and then using the Bond themes as well, so that musically it was um, a very happy exercise. I like the idea of, of instead of using M's office, that M should come and catch Bond in a rather embarrassing situation and were out of the office for a change, which I think was fun. The young lady was enchanting. Now let's meet Madeline Smith, who plays the delicious Italian agent, Miss Caruso. Smith was born in 1950, and by the early 70s was considered one of the most beautiful women working in British films. I had a very small part in 
an episode of a television series called The Persuaders, which you may have heard, uh, with Roger Moore and Tony Curtis. And although it was a very small part, I had the most wonderful time on this piece. And I think Roger Moore rather liked me and suggested me to the Bond people, because very shortly after I'd finished filming, I was called for an interview and got it. No trouble at all. May I say here what a wonderful person Roger Moore is. He was so kind, and not only kind to me, but so genuinely caring and professional. And I watched him rehearsing in the corner of the studio, a big stunt scene on a, on a train, and he did it over and over and over and over again. And I watched him doing this thing. I thought, my goodness, you really do care a lot to get it absolutely dead right. Now back to Guy Hamilton, who talks about Roger Moore's hair and explains why in Live and Let Die, James Bond has developed a sudden interest in cappuccino. This takes the place of stirred, not shaken. Instead of uh, talking about drinks, this time we're talking about cappuccinos and um, anything to annoy him. Baines was working on a small island in the Caribbean called San Monique. Dawes was in New York, keeping an eye on its prime minister, one Dr. Kananga. Hamilton was on loan to the Americans in New Orleans. Is that all it does? By the way, congratulations seem to be in order. The Italians were most impressed by the way you handled the Rome affair. Thank you, sir. Sugar? Oh, thanks. Well, the authorities were more than helpful. There's one small complaint. They seem to be missing one of their agents, a Miss uh, Caruso. Oh. Now let's hear about Roger Moore from Lois Maxwell, who created the role of Miss Moneypenny. I first met Roger Moore at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art when we were both 17, and he was gorgeous. He was covered in puppy fat, but he was funny and witty and charming and utterly delightful. At one point, he played Henry V, and I played his uncle of Exeter. I made, um, I forget how many, but quite a few saints with Roger. And one day, I had to go there the following morning, and um, I had two little children, and I had to take them with me. And I remember walking on the set with them, and um, Roger said, oh, and my son was about perhaps three, and my daughter was four and a half. And Roger said, and what's his name? And I said, Christian. And Roger said, what a wonderful name. If I ever have another son, I shall call him Christian. And he did. And now back to Guy Hamilton. Magnetic watch, having set that up, we now have to have a payoff, which of course is to unzip the young lady. And I said to the special effects when he came to shoot the scene, how did you do that? And they said, oh, we got it all worked out, Gov, don't worry. Well, I did worry because it became one of the most lunatic things for anybody who walked on the set and saw it. Wretched Madeline Smith is standing there 
somebody is down on the floor under her skirt holding the bottom of the zip tight somebody is with a fishing rod and a very thin line is on the top of a ladder above her and the la the line is attached to the zip and on cue is pulling and she has to hold her breath and she is absolutely surrounded with people holding onto her skirt under her skirt on top in order to make the zip shoot up and down rather effectively it looks easy but it wasn't a man comes travels quickly. He has purpose. He comes over water. He travels with others. He will oppose. He brings violence and destruction. That's Joey Chitwood, who was a stunt driver and a wonderful stunt driver for all our, all our car stunts. He had a team and they were really remarkable. These New York scenes were the last shot for the film in March of 1973, less than three months before the premiere. Back to Guy Hamilton and the filming of the car chase. This was also remarkable on, uh, I've forgotten the name of the avenue in New York, but to allow us to run a car chase in the middle of the day, closing off about four or five intersections all the way down. This is, this is a remarkable thing about America, that uh, they love movies, and the mayor of New York, who wants movies to come there, and they cooperate really to the utmost extent The day we shot this, the brass of United Artists came down to because it was just around the corner from their offices, and they came to see how movies are made, etc., etc. And I said, "Oh, you won't really see anything. Why don't you ride in one of the cars?" And one of the cars was going to be bashed by Jerry Chitwood, so I made sure that they were in that car and didn't know anything about it. And they were white-faced when they got to the other end because they thought they were, their last days had come as they were being banged around. basic trick with a lot of car chases is that you have as many cars as you can possibly get. Station keeping with gaps between each other. The gap being just wide enough for somebody to weave in and out. And if all those cars station keep and do 40 miles an hour, then somebody coming at 60 can weave their way through so long as they 
absolutely all stay at 40 and, and keep their distances. Now let's meet the only actor to play Felix Leiter twice. David Hedison came to fame in such films as The Fly and the espionage television show Five Fingers. I was living in England at the time, and uh, Tom Mankiewicz, who had written the screenplay, came over to our house. We were living there. And uh, my wife cooked a dinner, and he said to me, uh, you know, there's a part, Felix Leiter, the American, uh, you know, agent. He said, would you be interested in playing that with Sean? I said, yeah, it sounds great. It'd be great fun. I'd love to do a Bond film. And then the next thing I knew, Sean wasn't doing it, and then Roger came into the picture. So uh, it worked out very well. Has not lived up to your prior expectations. Well, we can only hope that this is a temporary setback. However, I do have some observations to make. Take a letter, please. To Secretary General Pan Island Unity Conference. Sir. I wish to point out that too many of our island neighbors have once again let themselves be bullied by United States industry. The story is an old one, the record a clear one. Since my historic statement of principles was delivered and acted upon some six months ago, our economic outlook has improved dramatically. By exercising our policy of friendship to all with favoritism towards none, new respect for the entire area has been engendered. And even though some of my most James, that car is registered to a shop. This is a good place to talk about the social context of the original novel, Live and Let Die. The film is loosely based on the 1954 novel by Ian Fleming, which is probably his most controversial Bond story. In the novel, Fleming's villain, a Haitian called Mr. Big, has discovered the pirate treasure of buccaneer Sir Henry Morgan on a small island off the coast of Jamaica. Fleming toured New York's Harlem nightclubs in 1952. He heard about the political power of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the Black Union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Despite his best efforts, Fleming's novel is still steeped in the standard white paranoia of the day. Before publication in America, the book was heavily edited by Al Hart at Macmillan. By 1972, the race relations problems in America had changed and white Americans were well aware of the problems of inner-city life for many blacks and the dynamic black culture of the times. Films of the early 1970s, such as Superfly and Black Caesar, proved there was a wide market for films that played off the black American culture. Despite this, there was still uneasiness on how to handle a Bond film where all the villains are black. first concern. Thus, San Monique's future obligations via via her island neighbors would seem clear. Those who fawn and crawl in the face of intimidation must perforce look up to those who stand, proudly wrapped in a justifiable self-confidence. The time has come, painful as it may be, to gaze out among our sister nations in the area and see if any stands tall.
he's tailing. I got him in my sights. on the tail of that jukebox and there's an extra 20 in it for you. Hey, man, for 20 bucks, I'll take you to a Ku Klux Klan cookout. must have gone inside. Pull up where you can. Time for a little history on Roger Moore and the role of James Bond. Moore was indeed considered for the first Bond film, Dr. No, in 1961, but never auditioned for the role, nor was he offered the part. Over the years, Moore got to know the producers, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. They informally approached him after Sean Connery announced that he was leaving the role in 1966, as soon as he finished the filming of You Only Live Twice. Moore was available to work at the time, but the producers then planned to shoot a version of The Man with the Golden Gun in Cambodia. When a civil rebellion erupted in rural areas of the country in 1967, the plans for the film were shelved, and by the time Broccoli and Saltzman were ready to cast a new bond for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Moore was again busy. After Connery's return in Diamonds Are Forever, Moore seemed the obvious choice. I'd like something on the side as well. Information. Three men and a girl came in. Critics also questioned if Bond was becoming too much of the butt of the jokes in these early scenes in Harlem. Guy Hamilton explains why he feels these scenes are important. The thing is to give Bond a hard time, take the mickey out of Bond, because his turn will come. But you've got to set up that people that he's dealing with are, are clever, and Bond, you will have to be a damn sight cleverer than they are if you're going to get out of the problems that we are going to produce for you. My name's Bond. James Bond. I know who you are, what you are, and why you have come. You have made a mistake. You will not succeed. Rather a sweeping statement, considering we've never met. Cards have followed you for me. Now you get ripped off in Detroit, baby. You yell out for me. Let's meet Jane Seymour, who remembers how events unfolded after Harry Saltzman declared he wanted her to play solitaire. Is he on? He took me and 
took me across the street to where Cubby's office was, and there was Cubby, and I came in and I met Cubby. I knew that you didn't get parts that easily, and there I was, standing in their office, and obviously I had this part. The only problem was I wasn't available. So the next thing I did, they, they ushered me out to my car. I, I drove a, a little blue Volkswagen Beetle. I was so shocked that I backed my Volkswagen into, into either Cubby or Harry's Rolls Royce. I don't remember which, but I did. I dented it. <laughs> and off I drove to my agent to see, you know, what we were going to do. My agent was, like, shaking with excitement, said, I don't know how we're going to make this work, but somehow we will. And, of course, eventually they managed to schedule it, so I was able to do both. But uh, that's how I got the part. Now it's time to introduce co-art director Peter Lamont. To date, Lamont has worked on 16 of the Bond films and has risen from draftsman to production designer. He worked mainly with Ken Adam, who designed seven of the Bond films, and also with Sid Kane, who designed three, including Live and Let Die. Lamont is acclaimed outside the world of Bond, having won an Academy Award for his work on James Cameron's Titanic, where he built a nearly full-size replica of the doomed ship in a tank in Mexico. Previous to winning, Lamont was nominated for his work on Fiddler on the Roof, Aliens, and The Spy Who Loved Me. Lamont is noted for the detail and accuracy of his art department work, and on the Bond films, he works with a familiar team. On The World Is Not Enough, Lamont employs his brother, his son, and his nephew. He works closely with production buyer Ron Quelch, who has worked on every Bond since Dr. No. Lamont remembers shooting in Harlem for Live and Let Die, where he discovered that not all the items in Harlem alleyways are as worthless as they may seem. When we were up in Harlem, we had the black Muslims and they looked after us. It was amazing because there was a, this piece of derelict ground and all these kind of tenements were all derelict. And they did have all these old escapes and we'd made a special one that would come down. And I remember a guy turned up and uh, he said, I think this is great. And, and it all belonged to the city. But the Muslims, I must say, were great because they, uh, they were very polite. And I know a guy came and he said, this is great, but he said, you see all those big festoons of wires? He said, I think they look great. You know, when we come to shoot here, why don't you get some of the festoons of wires over here? So I said, sure, of course I will. So I got the boys around there and they got ladders and they cut all these wires down, you see, and we got them all into position. And just before we shot, there some fellas came around with uh, uh, hard hats on, a gold one, and said, Jesus, I'm from the telephone company. He said, you know, we've had a lot of problems around here. The phones are down. So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's some fellas been up there and, and cut, all the, cut all the wires. I said, what? What do you mean? Do you mean they would say all that stuff works? He said, yeah, that all works. And all these festoons of wires, we'd cut down. And it was done quite unwittingly. Disguise you're wearing. Hmm? White face in Harlem. Good thinking, Bond. Let's get out of here. We are about to rejoin Guy Hamilton, but before we do that, a few words about dancer, choreographer, and actor Jeffrey Holder, who is about to appear in the film. Holder was born in Trinidad in 1930, and along with his brother Bosco Holder, Jeffrey was encouraged to explore the arts from the time he was a small child. Holder moved to New York in 1953 and formed an influential dance troupe. He became a renowned performer in theater, television, and as the premier danseur of the Metropolitan Opera in Manhattan. He was even invited to perform for President Johnson at the White House. Jeffrey Holder even met Ian Fleming, cooking dinner for James Bond's creator at his apartment in Harlem before the author's death. Interestingly, Live and Let Die was not the first time Holder played the character of Baron Samedy. He had performed the part years earlier on Broadway in a Truman Capote play. To bring the odd set of connections full circle, 
Capote, in fact, had once been a house guest at Fleming's home in Jamaica, Goldeneye. Now let's listen to Guy Hamilton on the character of Baron Samadhi. In Fleming's book, Baron Samadhi is very much a, a mythical character in the, in the Caribbean, as you know. Jeffrey Holder, actually I think is from Trinidad, and knew a lot about Baron Samadhi. So it was fun to, and unusual in a Bond picture, to have a slightly weird mythical character that could um, spring up, because Baron Samdi is, is like Frankenstein. He comes out of, uh, it's, it's the legend of the undead. Geoffrey Holder lived in, uh, in Harlem and took me round many, many of the jazz clubs. And he was a much respected character by the black community. And so it was very nice to be taken along and have entree to certain uh, clubs and places. Bungalow 12. An incurable romantic, Mrs. Bond. While Bond gets settled on the mythical island of San Monique, let's take a look back at the background of the film's director, Guy Hamilton. Hamilton was born in 1922 in Paris, France, to English parents but he learned French as his first language. He schooled at Halleberry in England, but Hamilton always sought out life experience as his greatest teacher, a philosophy which led him on many adventures. Guy Hamilton began his film career before World War II at the Victorine Studios in Nice, France, where he started as a T-boy. He quickly began to crew on films, working for many noted French performers. After Germany began expanding into Western Europe, Hamilton joined the Royal Navy. Hamilton crewed on a destroyer and saw service in Norway, Murmansk, and Malta. Hamilton rejoined the film industry after the war, working as an assistant director, and quickly became noted as the best in the business. Hamilton worked with Carol Reed for five years, and in The Third Man, it is Hamilton's shadow which is seen on the walls of the sewers of Vienna. Hamilton also worked with John Huston on The African Queen, where his tentmate in Africa was a young boom operator named Kevin McClory. Guy Hamilton's big directing break came when Alexander Corder offered him a low-budget second bill feature, The Ringer, the third film adaptation of Edgar Wallace's mystery novel, The Gaunt Stranger. Hamilton went on to direct and co-write many films in the late 50s and early 60s, most notably The Colditz Story and The Devil's Disciple. Hamilton naturally was considered for directing Dr. No, but did not commit to make a Bond film until Goldfinger, when Terence Young backed out. Hamilton was asked to return on Thunderball, but claimed he was drained of ideas. Hamilton went on to direct two notable films for Bond producer Harry Saltzman, Funeral in Berlin, part of the Harry Palmer series starring Michael Caine, and the mammoth production, The Battle of Britain, which starred nearly every English actor alive. Hamilton returned to Bond to direct Diamonds Are Forever and The Man with the Golden Gun. Hamilton also gave future Bond Pierce Brosnan his first on-screen role opposite Elizabeth Taylor in Agatha Christie's mystery, The Mirror Cracked. Hamilton's films are noted for their effortless and efficient style, as well as their cavalier humor. Hamilton once said that a director must have a touch of James Bond in his system to successfully direct a Bond film. And in this case, he was entirely accurate. Now Hamilton tells us about one of the easier performers he had to direct. 
snakes are very much part of uh, this story, so <clears throat> I thought this would be fun to do, and we got a snake, and I thought it would be absolute agony to shoot, and the snake is magnificent. It read the script, it uh, took direction, it came down the pipe at the right speed, it stopped, looked in the right direction, and was a magnificent little snake, and I was very, very sorry when uh, we had to get rid of it. Anybody home? Jamaica is full of voodoo, voodoo ceremonies, and I think uh, Fleming had seen that himself. He injected it into the book, and we carried on from there. Put it on the table, thanks. What? Shall I open it? Oh, no, no, I can manage. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Sid Kane remembers his introduction to voodoo while touring Haiti. Guy, um, I think is, is, is a good director. We had, uh, a bit of fun looking for locations. He took me, or we went together to uh, Haiti and, and St. Lucia, around the islands. And whilst we were in Haiti, we went and saw a voodoo thing. And that was rather um, scary, quite honestly. Whilst we were in Haiti, um, knowing my fussiness over food, he, uh, he said to me one evening, he said, I've ordered you a, a special dinner, it's chicken, mountain chicken, which I said, oh, great, you know. And anyway, it, it, it turned out, and it looked, I thought at the time, it looked a peculiar shape for a chicken, but there again, I thought, well, fair enough, we're in a foreign country, you know. And I ate it, and it tasted very nice. It tasted very nice. I, um, didn't taste like chicken, but it tasted quite nice. And he said, how did you get on? How did you like it? I said, it was very nice, sir. Guy, thank you very much. He said, well, now come with me and I'll show you what you've been eating. And he took me outside the hotel and in a big high pen with these huge toads. And he said, that's what you had today, mountain chicken. And apparently they were in these pens and they were they were big. These toes were really big. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. They were, must have been nine inches long. I mean, they were huge things. I mean, so I suppose one could mistake them for a chicken. But uh, they were in these pens because it was a delicacy. Guy had a very wicked sense of humour. Pointed at me. The man who delivered your champagne is not a hotel waiter. I was just trying to be careful. As for Felix, Lyre, back to Guy Hamilton. I was anxious that there was no Jamaican actress that, uh, that we could find because there was basically no Jamaican cinema at that time, although subsequently they came out with a super picture. So it had to be a New York actress, and I interviewed many, many young New York actresses. It's a relief to know I'm next in line for the same kind of aid.
a snake. I forgot I should have told you you should never go in there without a mongoose. Oh, I should have never gotten into any of this. I'm going to be completely useless to you. Oh, sure we'd be able to lick you into shape. Well, it's uh, getting late, Mrs. Bond. Tomorrow is going to be a very busy day for us. You see, Kananga is protecting something down here, something which uh, Baines obviously discovered. Let's meet the actress who did get the role of Rosie Carver, Gloria Hendry. So uh, they drove me over to the French Quarter to a wonderful hotel, and being in a fine French restaurant, and Roger coming in, and Guy Hamilton coming in, and we're sitting there having dinner, very easily talking, nothing harsh, no script, no reading at all. I was trying not to be excited. And knowing to me, this is all <laughs> make-believe. First of all, I'm, they're not going to hire me. That was the bottom line. So they asked me after dinner, um, we won't know what our decision will be, but we'll let you know. But in the meantime, would you like to stay for the weekend? So it was obviously a Friday. Would you like to stay for the weekend here? I said no. Now, you ask me that, that today, I would say yes. But I said, no, I don't know why. Maybe because I was scared. Uh, and also being in foreign, in, in different territory, not knowing anything, so, and excited. And the, the first thing came out of my mouth was no. So I jumped on the first flight out of there and came back to New York. And I told my manager, Lloyd Comar, what happened. And I said, I'm going back to California. I doubt if I have the role. I've got to get some work. So um, I, I jumped on the first plane that I could find to get out of here. And I went back to California because I was being offered another role in another film. And a week passed. I had gotten this particular movie, and I forgot the name of it right now, but it was with Bernie Casey. It was a lead role with Bernie Casey. And I had gotten hired for the movie. And another leading role, because Black Caesar was my first leading co-starring role ever. And this was my second one coming up with Bernie Casey. So um, my manager said, you got it. I went, what? I got it? He said, you got it. And I went, but I have a film. He said, they want you to fly out of here within whatever. But I, know I ha knew I had to be there right away. I can't give you the exact time. So anyway, we were able to make arrangements. I flew out straight to New Orleans, and they put me up at a hotel in New Orleans, and I was so excited. I studied that script. I tore that script. I think I read that script around 50 times, memorizing my lines and getting involved with the character. It was the most exciting. It was so exciting that I got the movie. Me, close off where? All of the exterior boat scenes were shot off the north shore of Jamaica in November and December of 1972, not too far from the spot where James Bond was born, Ian Fleming's Jamaican home, Goldeneye. During the shoot, Roger Moore visited Fleming's house which at the time was being rented by his estate. The home sits on a bluff overlooking the Caribbean. At this date, it is owned by Chris Blackwell, who founded Island Records. 
Blackwell's mother, Blanche, and Fleming were close, and a young Chris Blackwell actually worked on the first Bond film, Dr. No, as a location manager in Jamaica. Blackwell has stated that the money he earned working on the film helped him start the record label. The house ended up in Blackwell's hands after the death of Fleming's widow. Chris Blackwell suggested the property to a rather famous Jamaican, Bob Marley. Marley made an offer on the house and then decided it was not really his style. Blackwell felt obligated to make good on the offer and stepped in and purchased the place. He kept it mainly as a rental property, often loaning it to such friends as Bono of U2, Princess Anne, Marianne Faithful, and Jimmy Buffett. Of course, back in Fleming's time, the house often hosted famous guests, such as Prime Minister Anthony Eden, Catherine Hepburn, and Fleming's friend, Noel Coward. After Coward visited the house, he decided to purchase his own Jamaican home, and he eventually moved to the island permanently. Each of the James Bond novels and most of the short stories were written by Fleming at his Bulletwood desk at Goldeneye during the period from January through March of 1952 through 1964. Some say that Fleming's greatest creation was not James Bond, but the villains he fabricated for Bond to slay. Guy Hamilton talks about the elements of a good James Bond villain. The Mr. Big in a Bond movie, or particularly in this one, has to be the intellectual equal of Bond, so that because he always has some clever scheme in mind and is able to talk about it intelligently and not be a thug. All the thuggery, he has other people to deal with that sort of thing because he hates the sight of blood. Um, he doesn't want to be involved in it. So we make Yafit Koto the equal of Bond. We make him as smart as Bond, not only in physically what he wears, but uh, in his dialogue so that he becomes a worthy opponent. Yafit Koto grew up in Harlem. When he decided he wanted to become an actor, he began imitating Timex watch spokesperson and newscaster John Cameron Swayze to improve his diction. He was trained in the American Conservatory Theater in Pittsburgh and appeared in hundreds of plays before establishing a film and television career. In the very early 70s, Koto formed New Era Productions, a company set up to open doors to minority filmmakers and performers. No bodies this time, no trace. It's down there. But uh, I thought you said Baines was killed up in the hills, darling. Up in the hills down there. Why don't we have a bite of lunch and discuss it, hmm? There's an excellent patty in the hamper. I'm in no hurry. Are you? No. <laughs> Now let's hear from Julius Harris, who plays Teehee. Harris's hook was controlled by his breathing, and the actor found it difficult to say his lines and work the claw mechanism at the same time. Here he remembers giving Gloria Hendry some advice. Poor girl, when she, she has that scene where with, with Roger at the picnic before she gets wasted, she was scared to death because it was a love scene. You know? And she was afraid of what Roger's wife is going to say about that. 
She came to me and she said, what should I do? I said, do it. That's what you get paid for. I mean, she won't mind. Now, back to Gloria Hendry. I certainly wouldn't have killed you before. Wonderful Louisa, a Roger's wife, a wonderful, fiery spirit lady. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Well, I really didn't want to do this scene, and she was on the set because I had to kiss Roger, drape my body over Roger. The water's running down. I mean, as I look at today, it was great. It was wonderful. And I'm a garlic nut. I'm a big garlic head. As I was draped over Roger, lying under me, and I was talking to him, Roger said, you're lucky I'm married to an Italian woman to be dealing with this garlic. This scene was shot in Ocho Rios, the chief tourist destination in Jamaica, in a secluded area above the Ruins restaurant. Back to Gloria and her memories of her death scene. I tell you, I wanted to get up so bad. Here I am on the ground with a, a make-believe blood, and I think it probably had a little sugar in it, and these ants were just crawling all over me, I tell you. No, you can't get up yet. It's like, you better let me up here. I'll never forget that scene. Now back to Julius Harris and his memories of working with Guy Hamilton. Guy Hamilton, he was a director. He took care of business. But he was a man that I respected a whole lot. He wasn't one of these characters that walked around with a whip and I'd say, do, 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 do. He would let us as actors think about what we're going to do and allow us to discuss it with him. I mean, he was, he was an actor's director. James Bond's use of a hang glider coming up here in just a second had first been considered for the film Thunderball, but was dropped from the script. Bill Bennett, an Australian who helped develop the sport, performed the actual flying stunts. Guy Hamilton remembers. Here, hang glider was a new toy, so Bond arrives by hang glider. Uh, one of the first gentlemen who was hang gliding, and, and so we brought him out specially to Jamaica to hang glide. Now it's become so prevalent that everybody does it, but in those days it was fairly new. Hang gliders today are much more efficient. That was a rather primitive one. I cannot see when you are this way with me. I love cards and card Things manipulation. And in Vegas, I used to see some of the great manipulators and in Hollywood as well at the Magic Castle, which is a great place to go to, to see close-up magic. When the time comes, I decide you are to lose it. I myself will take it away. Ted Moore's such a good cameraman. He's, you know, really, you can get a very ordinary set, but uh, he gives it a lovely gloss. We are at a key junction in the story, almost halfway through the film, and this is a good place to talk about the structure of the tale. The basic premise of Live and Let Die, both the novel and the film, is that Bond, our mythic hero, must slay the two-headed giant, Dr. Kananga slash Mr. Big. In this story, a large part of the villain's power comes from his ability to see the future through solitaire. Bond steals the villain's second sight, 
just like Little Jack steals the golden goose from the giant in the children's tale Jack and the Beanstalk. And like the children's tale, the remainder of the film mainly consists of Bond attempting to escape from the villain's wrath. Homer's Odyssey and the battle between Odysseus and the Cyclops is another more classical analogy to the plot. In the end, Bond must return to slay the giant in order to rescue Solitaire. Like most Bond films, the villain's plot, in this case heroin smuggling, has nothing to do with the actual story we see on screen. The smuggling is a mere excuse to establish that the villain is indeed a bad person. What does give Mr. Big his power is his ability to control so many people, a device lifted from the novel. What gives Bond his power on screen is the way he achieves his goals, blithely seducing women and casually killing the villain's henchmen without a second thought, a bit of a change from heroes of the past. While writer Tom Mankiewicz jettisoned much of Fleming's original work, Part showed up years later in other Bond films. Midway through the novel, Bond's friend Felix Leiter is mauled in a pit by sharks beneath a dockside warehouse. Writers Richard Maybaum and Michael Wilson would later resurrect this scene in 1989's License to Kill. In 1981's For Your Eyes Only, Bond and his female companion are towed behind the villain's yacht over a coral reef, a scene that provided the climax of Fleming's novel. Now back to Jane Seymour and her feelings on Bond's methods of seduction. You could think of James Bond as being a bit of a villain because he cheated her at her own game. He basically cheats with the cards and, and tells her that it's her destiny to be with him, putting her life in danger and, of course, making her lose her mystical powers. And I think I always thought that was a pretty rotten thing of James Bond to do. You know? That was not nice of an Englishman to do, no. The whole deck full of lovers, not, not right. <laughs> Uh, Roger Moore teased me because he called me Baby Bernhardt after, you know, the famous classical actress Sarah Bernhardt. He thought I was taking this role very seriously as an actress, and so I was always referred to as Baby Bernhardt. <laughs> the roots of the black magic portions of the novel Live and Let Die spring from two sources. First, Fleming's experiences in Jamaica, where there was a small but active voodoo cult. Second, from the writings of a friend, Patrick Lee Furmore, who had recently published a book on the Caribbean entitled The Traveler's Tree. Fleming has Bond read the book's passages on voodoo in Haiti to gain an understanding of Mr. Big's powers. Interestingly, the book also talks about Fleming's home in Jamaica. So it's finally happened. Just as it did to my mother and her mother before her. Well, of course it did. Well, you're, you're visual proof of that, aren't you? to be a first time for everyone. Now tell me, where's Kanaga? I cannot see. Oh, yes, the cards. I'll get them. No. There's no need to be frightened. You'll soon be rid of him, I promise. I promise. I just need a little bit of information, that's all. Live and Let Die would be the last James Bond film shot exclusively by Ted Moore. He shared credit with Oswald Morris on The Man with the Golden Gun. Moore was born on August 7, 1914, in Cape Provenance, South Africa. He died in 1987. 
Ted Moore's lavish color photography and clear compositions made him a perfect choice to realize James Bond's cinematic adventures. He is noted as one of the great widescreen cameramen. Moore immigrated to England in 1930 with his family. He flew combat missions for the RAF during World War II, earning him the DFC from Britain and the Croix de Guerre from France. He worked with the RAF's film unit before entering the movie industry after the war. Moore's controlled work as a camera operator on difficult films like The African Queen won him praise. He was working as a director of photography by 1955 and shot many films for producer Albert Covey Broccoli and his partner Irving Allen in the 1950s. Moore's cinematography on The Trials of Oscar Wilde showed how he could bring perfect balance to Ken Adams' daring sets. Coupled with Moore's ability to photograph lush locations for maximum effect, he would prove to be an ideal choice to film James Bond's world. Ted Moore photographed with wide-angle lenses, using deep focus techniques and emphasizing bold colors. Moore won an Academy Award for his photography on the 1966 film A Man for All Seasons. Now, do you want to be on that boat or not? I simply read the cards for him. I've never been there. And he has never taken me there. I've never dared to go. But I've looked in the cards. They've seen great riches there. They'll kill you. Us, darling. They will kill us. Love was lesson number two. Togetherness. Till death do us part or thereabouts. Is there time before we leave? For lesson number three. Absolutely. There's no sense in going off half cocked. This way. How can you be so sure? Well, these scarecrows are to scare people away. You're not scared, are you? Lesson number four, follow the scarecrows. Julius Harris recalls his experiences at another location, England, where the interiors were filmed at Pinewood Studios. When I was there during the war, I was about 18, 19 years old when that happened. Because they shipped us from here to England, and I got a chance to go up to London for the first time. And then the second time I was there, I went back to London to do a play. I was with the Negro Ensemble at the time, and we did a series of plays there. We did the Amen Corner, God is a Guess What. The third time when I went to 
do uh, Live and Let Die. I love London. I had a good time there. You know, I really enjoyed that city. And I was treated well. I had a chauffeur driven Bentley, you know, riding around like I was a prince or something. I had a ball. Despite being treated well by the producers, Jane Seymour's experiences filming this sequence were not quite so luxurious. She had never worked with explosive charges and bullet hits before. It was not one of her favorite days on the set, as she now recalls. I know one thing that was very disconcerting to me was when they were shooting us with machine guns. And I've never felt the same about guns ever again on films. I've, I've been, was terrorized by this, terrified. They, had us like in the sand and they arranged my fingers in exactly a certain position in the sand and my face had exactly a certain place and they didn't tell me why and then they went action i had to be like i was afraid and um they fired a machine gun just full loads right behind my head and all these explosive charges went off between my fingers and as roger wrote in his book i buried my head in the sand like a bloody mole i did i went oh. <laughs> It was terrible. And then if you really watch the film carefully, you see whenever a gunshot comes off, my hands are on the way to just holding my ears because I just, I hate gunshots. Hence, I haven't done that many action movies. must die. Now let's hear from Guy Hamilton, who will tell us about the inspiration and preparation for the double-decker bus sequence. I seem to get... All my ideas from television, they used to be after the news, some program on the BBC, and this was the driving school for buses at North Hendon, and for your final week, you went there onto the skid pan, and there was a post which represented a bus stop, where it was a bus stop, and they wetted down the whole skid pan, and the driver twiddled the bus and skidded and brought it to an absolute halt with the passenger entrance exactly by the bus stop. And I thought it was very, very impressive throwing a bus around like that. And Right, how's about Bond throwing a bus around? Oh, Jamaica's got English buses. You don't have buses, uh, English buses anywhere else except in the ex-English colonies like India and places like that. Yeah, we can get a bus. What can we do with a bus apart from a skid pan we haven't got? Ah, supposing we had a low bridge and we knocked the top off, that, that could be interesting, and the, the top would fall on whoever's chasing, or a police car chasing behind. Yeah, I like that, that's good. Right, now, it's going to be quite complicated. Getting the bus was easy. We bought a real old second-hand bus for about 500 pounds and handed it over to the special effects and had found the bridge in Jamaica. We measured that carefully. That was the right height. And I refused to do, to film any of the stunts until I've seen it happen because you cannot afford to any, have any mistakes when you've got 150 units uh, on location and something's not working and you've got to do it again, do it again, do it again. I mean, it's just ridiculously expensive. So we test these things. And here on the lot at Pinewood, 
they put up a steel girder, which was exactly the same height as the bridge in Jamaica, and we had the bus, and the art department took off the top deck of the bus, put some slides on, and the general idea, and they strengthened it so that the general idea was that you hit the thing and the top would slide down this slide and fall away. And I had the third assistant with a little eight millimeter camera, and he sat out there when they were ready to do it and just filmed the, filmed the test. And the, the first couple of tests were pathetic because what happened was they hit the girder at 40 miles an hour and the whole thing squashed. It wasn't strong enough. So they really started again and reinforced the front. Then that hit it and, and nothing happened. Then they st started using lead and that was the secret that it started to um, take the first impact, crushed lead. And then, and then I they showed it to me on a little eight millimeter screen and it was beautiful. It worked just, uh, now do it again. Let's be absolutely certain that it wasn't a lucky one off. And after that it became, you know, absolutely dead certain. So I said, well now, when we come to shoot it, there'll be absolutely no problem. And sure enough, it was one take Charlie, you know, it hit, the thing slid, and bong. But all the hard work had been done by the special effects boys at Pinewood on the lot. And had we, had we not done all those preparations, we could have been out in Jamaica now. You begin to notice as you go along that Roger's beginning to relax into the part and no longer conscious that he's competing with another Bond. He's beginning to feel Bond in the skin, beginning to understand how he should play him. Uh, he's much more relaxed than he is in the first part of the picture, I think. A little background on Roger Moore. He's actually a bit older than Sean Connery. Although you can't tell it from these scenes, Moore was just turning 45 when Live and Let Die began shooting in October of 1972. By the time Moore took the role of James Bond, he was already noted for taking over parts for other actors. Moore joked that he got the part of Cousin Bo on the television show Maverick because he could fit into James Garner's costumes. When he took on the role of Simon Templer in the television version of The Saint, Moore was filling a role played by actors George Sanders and Lewis Hayward on the big screen. Moore once joked that he would be replacing Mickey Mouse soon. Moore began working for an animation studio as a picture tracer and an office boy before he turned to acting. The latter career came when the film Caesar and Cleopatra needed extras. Moore was spotted by the film's co-director, Brian Desmond Hurst, who offered to pay Moore's tuition to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Moore became a well-recognized male model before making it big in films and on television, including strong roles in The Last Time I Saw Paris, Dion, and the lead in the syndicated series Ivanhoe in 1958, and the ABC series The Alaskans in 1959. Moore was glad to return to England, where he worked for Sir Lou Grade on The Saint throughout the 1960s, and later The Persuaders in the very early 70s. Now back to Jane Seymour, who talks about an experience she had while filming in New Orleans. You took something that didn't belong to you took it from a friend of Mr. Biggs. 
I also remember someone tried to mug me when I was on Bourbon Street about four o'clock in the afternoon, the first time I've ever been mugged. And my instant response was to do exactly what Solitaire does in the script, in the James Bond script. She grabbed her handbag and threw it at James Bond. And I did this, which is, of course, not necessarily a lethal weapon handbag, but I somehow got away. Morning, you're, uh... Mrs. Bell, you're not my instructor. Where's Mr. Bleeker? Indisposed. I'll be giving the lesson. What's on for today? Well, let's just wing it, shall we, Mrs. Bell? Back to co-art director Peter Lamont, who remembers obtaining the planes for this sequence. The first thing we wanted were three, I think they were Cessna 180s, and uh, obviously they had to work. I remember Harry came to me and said, do you know, when you're down here, he said, you can get these, these, these planes for about 250 bucks, you see. And I remember uh, my art director, Steve Hendrickson, said, do you know, uh, I can't find any planes for that price. He said, I did find one, but he says, a heap of junk. So I said, well, you better buy it. So uh, we bought it. So we had this particular um, plane, and we'd done it. And Harry said, they are $250 plane. But I said, Harry, it costs five grand to put it right. He said, what? When we came to do the, the Cessna actually go through the hangar doors, um, we didn't even do anything. We just, we just let it loose, and it went through without, uh, we just tore it off. And uh, it was quite a funny sequence. He was the, the band who okay, kind of ran this whole setup. Worry, and, uh, guy said, I wonder if you'd like to be in the film. He said, yeah, I'd love to be in the film. You know? And when we put this little play, there was this lovely reaction where there's, there's the Cessna sitting there with the wings off, you know. And uh, it was a bit of fun. Yes, Mr. Bleaker. Yes, sir. Well, guy Hamilton recalls one of the natural challenges of shooting in Louisiana. The New Orleans has a huge bridge across uh, Lake Pontchartrain. It's about 10 miles long, and uh, you cross over to the other side, and there's wonderful territory where we shot the motorboat chase, and some very nice people. We used their houses, and they were very keen to play the bride and the guests, and uh, we were delighted to have them. And they entertained us right royally. And I remember one evening going to a cocktail party, and there were about 30 or 40 people out on the lawn of this lovely antebellum house with the moss hanging in the trees. And there were three or four of the unit. And all you could see them were we all slapping each other because we were being bitten to death by mosquitoes. And I looked around and none of the New Orleansites were being bitten. 
And so obviously they just go for new blood. The locals don't suffer from it at all. But we found it hideous. Let's take a moment to hear from Yafit Koto on how James Bond affected his life. I was very familiar with the Bond films because I, I'd seen Goldfinger, you know, and, and all the other um, films up to that point, and I was very familiar with them, and, and, and as everybody else, so a huge Bond film, and always saw myself as a kid uh, one day being James Bond, not just being in a, in a Bond film, but one day being James Bond. So finally, to finally end up in a James Bond film is like this childhood fantasy comes rocketing through. We had dinner at Harry Saltzman's immense house out in the country and all his many, many acres. The, the, the way we were treated doing a film for the, that company uh, was is just unbelievable. It's the treatment of the actors that the actors receive upon coming into a James Bond's first-class treatment by Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, first-class treatment all the way. The making of a whole James Bond movie is, not, is unlike the making of any other film. It, the whole atmosphere is James Bondish. The the casting, excuse me, the 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 rehearsal is James Bondish. The the wardrobe, the airline tickets, the flight, the location, the whole thing gives you this feeling of just you're going on this super adventure. It's going to be shot all over the world. You're going to go to these exotic locations that you've never been before. You're going to be surrounded by oodles and oodles of beautiful women. And uh, it's, it's just an unbelievable thing. When you start making a James Bond film, you start making a different kind of change in your life. You know, I had never worn watches before. I started wearing watches, and I started wearing certain ties. I started becoming James Bond. I started, you know, having my clothes laid out and drinking uh, Piper Heinzig champagne at the time. I had never drank, but suddenly here I am drinking Piper Heinzig champagne and eating certain salads, certain things. Because, you know, Bond has this ritual that he goes through in terms of his, eat, his food, doesn't he? A lot of food, he eats good food. So I started inculcating a lot of these things in my own personal life. And I started to become the suave, cool Dr. Kananga who was imitating James Bond. The only problem is, after the movie was over, I continued on with this suaveness and this coolness. It wasn't enough just to come off an airport and take a cab to go home. I had to have a limousine there. And in the limousine, there had to be champagne. And there had to be a secretary there, wasn't it? And it had to take me to a certain hotel, the Navarro Hotel on Central Park West. And I had to stay in certain suites. And I went crazy. It took me three years to stop this foolishness and get out of that habit of living on this totally suave place where there's only certain restaurants I can eat, and there's only certain things that I can drink, and only certain salads that I can have, and steam room, and this and that. I went on a, a James Bond trip, and it took me years to come back. I, did, I just didn't come back. And when things were through in New York, of course, I had to get on an airplane, of course, go to France, and stay at nice hotels in Paris, like James Bond would do. And finally, I woke up and said, you know, this is too much. I got to come back to reality. I just can't go on living this way. But it, when I look back at the times that I lived after James Bond, I said, man, it was nice, it was a lot of fun, but it's very, very expensive, and it's also insane. Obviously, I'm not James Bond, but that's what happens when an actor gets into a role. You kind of like 
get into it, and, and you st if it's a good role, you want to stay into it for a while before I give it up. I was very young at the time, and, and when you're young, you're silly and do you know, stupid things. And uh, they weren't dangerous things I did, but one can't live all over the world. One can't be in Spain getting calls from New York and flying, jetting to London and hanging out with pals in France. And that's insane. You have to, and I stopped. You know, I saw the world, but I stopped. I really did stop. You know, I came down off my, off my clown and, and returned to, 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 you know, normal consciousness again. But that was the effect that James Bond had on me. <laughs> and as Mr. Big... Julius Harris also enjoyed the luxury of making a Bond movie, particularly at Pinewood Studios. One thing I liked about Pinewood... Sound stages, sound stages, or sound stages. But when, but when it comes to lunchtime, you break and you go into a formal dining room. Linen on the table, knives and forks, glasses. And not like uh, the army mess kit type thing that you get on some location. It was absolutely, and everybody ate together. There was no separatism. There was no such thing as the crew over here or the crew eat a certain time and the extras eat the same. It wasn't that way. Everybody, and they had waiters. I used to love to have my lunch there. In fact, when I'm off, when I was off, I used to have my driver take me out there for lunch. As doubled, shall we say. Then I will begin to market that acreage that you blundered. Director Guy Hamilton recalls the difficulty of shooting with Teehee's mechanical arm. Teehee has this uh, artificial arm, and unfortunately, you can't cut the actor's arm off to put the artificial one on, so he has to fiddle around, and it's not an easy thing to manipulate. The question still stands. Mr. Difficult. Julius did his best, but was always having trouble with it. Did you touch her? The pencils aren't obviously going to do Bond any good. Well, Julius Harris remembers working with Roger Moore and the mechanical hook in this scene. And I hadn't quite mastered it yet. And I'm supposed to take his watch off with the uh, hook. And I'm fumbling around and I finally get it and I drop it. And he turns to me and he says, Hook. Strictly ad of the line, you know. And I, that's what he called me from then on. Butterhook. This scene, where Bond is interrogated, is also lifted from the novel, with some welcome additions from Tom Mankiewicz. In Fleming's original, Bond is questioned by Mr. Big in Harlem, and Teehee, who has both limbs in the novel, slowly breaks Bond's little finger when Bond refuses to answer certain questions. It is during this scene in the novel that Solitaire decides that Bond is a man who has the strength to stand up to Mr. Big. In this version, the scene gives Roger Moore the perfect chance to establish his brand of nonchalance in the face of danger. Yafit Koto plays the scene straight, which helps give real menace to the proceedings. Now back to Guy Hamilton, who takes us through the process of getting Bond into and out of dangerous situations. Tom and I always very keen on the snake pit situation where you put Bond in jeopardy, but give the audience, because you're playing games with them, saying, right, 
here's the situation. You know everything you need to know. You know the props that he's got, what cues given him. You, we've shown you everything. We'll play fair. Now, up to you to guess how Bond is going to get out of this terrible predicament. The one I'm going to set up for you shortly is crocodiles. Indeed, Bond is about to face crocodiles. Originally, Bond was going to be faced with a milling machine at a coffee factory, an adaptation of a sequence Tom Mankiewicz had originally written for the climax of Diamonds Are Forever. Wow. The entire development process of the Bond films, from script to screen, has always included this element of the snake pit situation, as director Hamilton describes it. When the films first hit the screens in 1962, the novels were bestsellers, so the filmmakers wanted to still give the fans of the novels some real surprises when they came to see the movie. Hence, in Dr. No, Bond does not successfully steal cutlery from the dining table in Dr. No's lair, and thus does not have a knife later on in the climax. And from Russia with Love, Red Grant takes Bond's cigarette case away. In the novel, the case prevents a bullet from going into Bond's heart. These little bits help filmmakers to say to the audience, ah, you think you know what is going to happen, but you don't. In Goldfinger, the filmmakers alter the plot so that Goldfinger actually gets inside Fort Knox with James Bond, Odd Job, and an atomic bomb. By You Only Live Twice, filmmakers were thinking up snake pit situations all their own and working around the clock to find clever ways for Bond to get out of the mess they had created for him. For Guy Hamilton, the more difficult and lethal the situation, the more grace Bond should have in getting himself out of it. Now Hamilton takes us through the crocodile sequence and the following boat chase, step by step. Put Bond on a small island surrounded by hungry crocodiles how is he going to get off? Ah, yes, you're right. He'll use his magnetic watch, and that'll make the rollocks on that uh, dinghy over there uh, turn, and he will draw the dinghy up to him. Ah, yes, that's how he's going to get off. Oh, no, look, the dinghy, unfortunately, is tied by a rope. That isn't going to work. Oh, my God, the crocodiles are now really getting close. Come on, audience, I'll give you another 20 seconds to figure out how Bond avoids being eaten by the crocodiles. It took us three months to figure out how he wasn't eaten by the crocodiles, so there's no way you're going to guess. And so now you produce the magic trick and the audience are relieved, laugh, uh, are amused by Bond's ingeniousness which, of course, had nothing to do with him. It was the writers who had to work their little bottoms off to figure out an escape. During the recce of Jamaica, I was a little bit disappointed not to have found anything uniquely Bondian on the island. I mean, it was a very beautiful island. Uh, there was the water, there were beaches, there was jungle, there was, you know, everything that was required for the movie, but there was nothing, uh, nothing unique, and we'd been around many other islands in the Caribbean and not found anything. And we were on our way to the airport when I saw something that said uh, Crocodile Farm, and I said, whoops, let's uh, stop and have a look at that. And we then cancelled our trip because the crocodile farm 
was run by a remarkable Seminole Florida half-Indian called Roskananga, who, whose father had been eaten by a crocodile or an alligator because they did a show in Florida. And, but the crocodiles were getting out of uh, control. So Ross came over to Jamaica, which had a similar climate, and he'd fenced off some marshland and some uh, lakes and things and started breeding alligators and crocodiles. And I thought, this is absolutely marvelous. We've got to get this into the picture somehow. How much do you know about crocodiles, Bond? Oh, I've uh, always tried to keep them at arm's length myself. <laughs> Cute little nippers, ain't they? I don't suppose those potential overnight bags are orphans. Oh, no, we have some moms and dads as well. In fact, uh, quite a few thousand. So when I got back and told Tom what I'd seen, he was as enthusiastic as I was, and we began to work out a sequence that we would um, have an island and bond on it. How do you get Bond onto the island? Well, obviously, we will have to build a bridge, and to make the uh, trick work, you will unwind the bridge. Teehee will tell us all we need to know about crocodiles, if they love chickens, etc. We took over the crocodile farm. In order to build the island, Kananga and his two assistants had to clear all the crocs away and put them in another large pool so that our art department could um, work there and build the island and the bridge. Then when that was done, the crocodiles went back. And on the eve of shooting, I went to see how the bridge was working and the crocodiles were there and it was all happy. And Kananga said, what are you, um, I mean, you're not gonna have any actors or Roger Moore, anybody on the bridge, are you? And I said, well, of course, I mean, why the hell do you think we built the goddamn thing? And he said, oh, well, I mean, there's no way that they're going to be there and feeding uh, crocodiles because um, they will be eaten alive. And I said, but don't be silly. When I first met you, you showed me how well they behaved. You, you got over a tiny little fence, which is about a foot and a half high, and you called a croc and it came swimming over and it waddled up onto the grass and you patted it on the nose. I thought that was very impressive, but I would never have been the other side of this two-foot fence if, if the crocodile could jump over it. And he said, well, of course it can't jump on grass, you idiot, because it waddles like a duck, it can't jump. But in the water with that tail, they can leap 12, 15 feet. Now he tells me, and I'm shooting this tomorrow morning. Oh, what do we do now? Well, the only way is to stop the crocs swimming. So what we had to do was get some chicken wire and make boxes and sink it and sink them either side of the bridge so that the crocs could swim up. These boxes were just below the surface. They could swim up too, but not get sufficiently close. And we hoped that was going to work. Now, the last person you wanted to tell was Roger, because uh, he wasn't too keen on the crocodiles, and I wasn't going to tell him 
what our problems were. But of course, he soon discovered, and dialogue scene, which when they rehearsed was about 40 seconds, he and Teehee got rid of the dialogue in about 20 seconds. I've never seen actors play a scene so fast that they could get off the bridge before the crocs were starting now to bounce on the boxes and we had to, we, we just got away with it. We had worked out the, the croc routine and the whole scene we'd worked out in London. And uh, Tom came out to Jamaica for one or two polishes and things. And I said, by the way, have we worked out how Bond gets off the island? And originally, they, we got him off the island by bringing the dinghy over with the uh, watch. But that's too easy, and it became much more fun to make a suspense because, aha, you think that's how he's going to get off the island, but it doesn't because it's attached by a rope. Tom said, yeah, I like that. I'll work on uh, how he gets off. So. About two weeks before we shoot this, I said, Tom, how does it get? He said, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. And it's getting very, very close. We have no way of getting him off. And in desperation, I said to Kananga, um, I mean, we're in real trouble. We got him on the island. How do we get him off? And he said, oh, well, I mean, he could walk on the crocodiles. I said, you're joking. He said, no, I can walk on the crocodiles. I mean, you're really joking. He said, no, no, no. And he showed us how he would do it. He would get some of his crocodiles, again, sink a small platform under the water, tie up, tie them up around their middles so that their tails could swish and their jaws open, because they don't really, not very keen on being walked on, so you can guarantee that the moment you step on it, the jaws will jump up and the tails will swish, and it'll be very impressive. And that's exactly what happened. Only thing was that he had to wear uh, Roger's shoes that were shiny and bright and polished, as Bond should always be. And they were very new, and the soles were very slippery. And Kananga slipped on the third prop and nearly went in. <laughs> we now come on to uh, motorboats. This was shot in New Orleans, and I'd been down to Florida to talk to the Cypress Gardens people because I wanted a motorboat to jump the levee. And I'd seen some of this in pictures, Esther Williams, MGM pictures, I think, shot in Cypress Gardens. And I said, how far can you jump a motorboat? And they said, oh, well, we have ramps, and we go up, and we can do it about uh, oh, 10, 15 feet. 
I said, well, that's absolutely hopeless because the levees, as we're talking about 70, 80 feet on, I can't do that. So back to our own devices. The, the city of New Orleans were very kind. They lent us a lake right in the middle of the city. It was a nice little lake. And we had two sorts of boats. We had our outboards and we had jet boats, and it was an argument as to which was going to be the most uh, suitable to jump. We had some stunt boys who knew absolutely bugger all about motorboats and jumping motorboats, and it's just a question of nobody has jumped them, so we've just got to get at it. I said, well, I can't shoot this, here's what we're going to do. Sid Kane designed in balsa wood the profile of the embankment, the police car on top, the other side of the embankment and back into the water and it was anchored in the middle of the lake. It was absolutely said if you could clear that then I'd be perfectly happy to allow a stuntman to do it because you knew that it was totally doable in safety. Then, of course, we had the takeoff ramp, which in reality would be hidden with bushes and reeds and things. And so I used to go out and watch them in the evening and very little progress was being made. Running up the ramp was the question of what angle the ramp was. The outboards would kick and lose speed and flop off the end 12, 15 feet, useless. I was convinced that the jet boats, which were much more powerful, much faster, would do the trick. And so they came at a high speed and whammed their noses into, so we had to change the angle of the takeoff ramp. Then it went up, but it lost so much speed, and because they were so much heavier that they just flopped back into the water. They were no good, and we were getting desperate because I would have to drop all that sequence. And somebody, and I've forgotten who, but brilliantly saved our day, said, we've got to go to the computer because we're doing something wrong. And at the university, they went there with the problem, and some genius worked on a computer in the engineering department and said, the ramp has to be at so-and-so degrees. Where you're going wrong is that the outboard engines are too low or too high on the transom. They have to be at this, and that should do it. And they rang up and said, come this evening, it really is terrific. And I watched, and a guy came, and he cleared the whole profile that we had floated out there. And I thought, God, it's going to work, it's going to work. Another one tried it and clipped the back end. I said, right, no, you're no good. <laughs> Let's get the driver who cleared it, and he was a young lad, and he did it again beautifully. And so I said, now, do you feel safe and comfortable? And he said, yeah, I mean, so long as the ramp and the same boat, off we go.
So the boat chase starts, and that's the highlight of it, is to clear a police car. Now let's hear from actor Clifton James, who explains the unexpected risks the boat drivers faced shooting this sequence. They do test runs with these motorboats, right? So they did the test run at 10 in the morning, you know, and then they shot the scene at uh, about 4 in the afternoon. What they'd forgotten is that back in the bayou, the tide comes in. So boom, they had to go under bridges. And the tide came in, and what they had rehearsed before, the first boat went through and tore the whole top of it off, you know. Fortunately, no one got hurt, but they could have been killed. Yes, sir, Captain. I understand. But I don't know right off. Guy Hamilton talks about Clifton James and the rest of the boat chase. Redneck Sheriff, to end all redneck sheriffs, met him in New York, and I thought he was absolutely splendid. And so down he came, and he immediately fell into the character, a little bit over the top, but uh, marvelously fun. Pepper was a wonderful character. Clifton was very, very surprised because, of course, he hadn't seen uh, all our efforts on the lake in the middle of New Orleans. So that when I said, right, you stand here by the police car, and then you'll be slightly surprised when you see a motorboat with that limey come along and it's going to fly over the top. I mean, he was, um, he was getting ready, I think, to jump into the water the other side. <laughs> And I think he was very, very surprised when it all happened. That's my brother-in-law. That's Billy Bob. He'll get him. Billy Bob will get him. Hot damn! If one side of the paper family don't get him, the other side will. Let's go. Yes, it was whilst we were racing down one of these bayous and uh, the operator was on the bow of the boat and I was holding him and we were going very fast and Roger is going very fast and we're trying to keep up with him. And we came to a split where we, we could have gone left and right. And Roger didn't know whether to go left or right so that he pulled back the throttle in order to find out which way he was meant to go. And we pull back the throttle, and we we're about to run up his behind. But because we had so much weight that as we pulled back the throttle immediately, the whole bow went down because of the weight, and the camera and the operator went underwater. And Bond takes a short cut by going over a lawn where there is a wedding reception going on and this is a jet boat and consequently it's got no prop therefore it should slide uh, in a straight line over the lawn but you don't have when you're on grass you don't your rudder doesn't work and it just uh, hit some bump in the lawn and put it just enough offline so that it went and bashed into a tree, which is unfortunate because that was one of the jet boats we'd written off. Written off. Fortunately, we always have a standby. And the second time round, we managed to 
get it straight through. And seeing a large ship abandoned, so it gives you an idea for the finale of uh, you've got to get rid of the villain somehow. And you see the open back, and so you say, hey, how about driving in there? And let's have a big bang. Goodbye, villain. I was in New Orleans about, uh, I'd say about six weeks, looking for all the locations, planning the shots, camera positions, all, all those problems. Now let's meet special effects supervisor Derek Meddings, who went on to work on five more Bond films and won an Oscar for his work on Superman. This interview was recorded on a windy day on the set of GoldenEye, just a few months before Metting's premature death in 1995. My mother was a continuity girl. She was a stand-in for Merle Oberon, and people will say, who the hell's Merle Oberon? But uh, she was a very well-known actress at that particular time, and my father was a master carpenter there. So it was something that really, it was in my blood. And my, I used to get taken to the studios, and uh, to me, it was magic. I did my national service. I came out of the Air Force, and I tried to get into the film industry, and it was very, very difficult at that particular time. And eventually, I got in doing titles for films at Denham Labs. And I hated doing titles, and I'd been trained as an artist. I'd been to art school. And eventually, I met a man called Les Bowie, who was really the, the sort of daddy of the British special effects. And um, he was a matte painter. And I, that's what I, as soon as I saw what he did, that's what I wanted to do. And I asked him if he would take me on. And I had a job at the time doing titles, as I said. And he said, if you can get, get away, he said, I'll employ you. And that's what happened. So I started doing matte paintings with him, which I loved. And we were doing all the Hammer horror films at that time. And Les was very versatile and could turn his hand to any type of special effect. In actual fact, Les always wanted to do something that he wasn't doing. If he was doing a matte painting, he wanted to do the miniatures. So for me, it was a great training ground. I started with Les doing the matte paintings and then he discovered that I was partially colorblind. And to have a partially colorblind matte artist is not a very good idea. And so my sort of matte painting career really came to a halt. But before it did, he did. A, he was always getting involved in miniatures on the Hammer horror films and various other pictures. And I thought, maybe that's a job I would love to do because it was very creative. You had to still be artistic and know about perspective. And of course, eventually, um, that's what I ended up doing. And what happened was that um, Jerry Anderson, who did the Thunderbirds, came to see Les and he asked Les if... Um, he would like to go down there on weekends and evenings, and it was like a 20-mile jaunt from Shepparton Studios way down to a place called Islet Park in Maidenhead near Windsor. And Les didn't want to get involved in a puppet film, so he pointed at me and he said, he'll do it. So I ended up working at the studios during the day and going down to Islet Park and working for the Andersons in the evening. Eventually, we ended up doing Thunderbirds, which of course was the, the greatest success of um, that particular time. And that for me, I think it was a really a good sort of training ground for myself in lots of respects because every script we had something like 200 special effects miniature shots to do. Without them, of course, 
all they had was funny walking puppets. And although I don't decry the puppets, you know, I didn't get involved with them, fortunately. So it gave me an opportunity to do all the things that I, I felt could be done with miniatures. Um, I had a large crew of people. We were doing our material on 35mm. Um, all the series was shot on 35mm, but we had, I had, uh, I think, about three cameras, three Mitchells, that were running at 120 frames a second nearly every day we were there because we were always blowing up things and exploding um, cars and doing car crashes. And of course, eventually it all came to an end after we did, we did a, a feature film called Doppelganger, which uh, was directed by Bob Parrish. And there were a lot of miniatures in that. It was a space picture. I think it came out in America as Far Side of the Sun. Um, Bob Parrish was an American director. He directed it and he said at the time, I think this picture could get you a, an Oscar. And so I was very excited. He said, but don't get too excited because there's another film and it was called Marooned with Gregory Peck. And he says, a good chance that'll get it because it's got big names in it. And of course it did. But at least my, the film went before the, the board and it was, um, you know, it was very near. After we uh, did that, we did UFO, which was a live-action series, which was very popular here. And again, everything that I'd actually experienced or practiced with on the Thunderbirds, I was now doing for UFO with real people. So to me, it was... Uh, uh, I, I felt that more people would see it. Of course, I realised at the time that Thunderbirds were so popular, I don't think anybody ever missed it. Well, the end of UFO, Lou Grade, who was running the company, shut it down because he felt that space films were now a bit old hat and uh, how wrong he was. We'll come back to Derek Meddings, but first, let's hear from Jane Seymour on the voodoo dance sequence. The voodoo scenes where I'm being coming in on, you know, being carried above, that, that was all my idea because I, I was a dancer and that's what I felt most comfortable with. So. I used to get into trouble at Pinewood because I would go into where they were rehearsing the voodoo scenes, Jeffrey and all the dancers, and, and I used to join in and I'd get all sweaty. And I was learning to do this, you know, really kind of down kind of voodoo black dancing, which of course I don't do in the, in the film. I was just doing it for my own pleasure. And then they'd call me back on the set and I'd be sort of pouring sweat and they'd have to start all over again with my hair and makeup. But dance was always my passion and Jeffrey and I became really great friends. Now back to Derek Meddings, who recalls how working on an Alistair McLean adventure film led to his job on Live and Let Die. I worked on a film called Fear is the Key, and Sid Kane was the production designer. And he asked me, I was doing all this, we had this um, sequence with a, a Dakota on the bottom of the seabed. I don't know if you know the story, but it was quite an exciting story. And, um, I did the underwater work, and I'd never done any underwater work or camera work in my life before. Um, and when Sid saw what we could do, he said, do you want to do the next Bond film? And of course, to me, Bond films were magic, and whoever did them, they were geniuses, and, you know, something really exciting. And I thought, well, I'll never do it. But in actual fact, he kept to his word, and when he did the next Bond film, I did it. And I was doing all the floor effects because there weren't very many miniatures on it.
Now let's hear from Guy Hamilton. The one thing that did um, work well was making a head of Baron Sandy, which was made out of china so that you could shoot it and a bit would shoot off. That's a wonderful likeness to actually Jeffrey Holder. It works well. The fake Baron Samedi was created by special effects makeup artist Rick Baker, who also designed Yafit Koto's special makeup for Mr. Big and the exploding body of Koto, which comes up later. Now back to Derek Meddings. But I think the thing that, um, that was such a success, which actually gave me a footing in the Bond films, was that at the end of the picture, there was a sequence where we were all in Jamaica, and there was this sequence when the poppy fields explode. And Guy Hamilton called me over and he said, could you do this as a miniature back at the studios? And I said, yes, I could. And he said, and it'll look good. And I said, yeah, of course it will, it'll look great. So he said, so can I say that this is a wrap here? And I said, yes, you can. So we didn't do that there, we wrapped it. And in actual fact, the reason for that was that we, he was a little bit behind and uh, on the schedule. We were running and we had to be out of Jamaica. I think it was in a, about a week or so. So we came back to England and I did the miniatures of this particular poppy field blowing up and that really started it. And then the next Bond film I did, they put more into it. And each Bond film that I've been involved in, they've had more and more miniatures. Now Guy Hamilton talks about Jeffrey Holder's toughest shot. But then eventually, Baron Sandy ends up in a coffin with a lot of wriggling snakes. And to my horror, Jeffrey Holder, absolutely terrified of snakes, hated them. I mean, just the sight of that really upset him. And the thing that saved our lives, we had a guest who was the... Um, ex-king of the Hellenes, and he was a visitor on the set. And so I lined it up, and poor Geoffrey <laughs> couldn't be chicken in front of the king of Greece so that he got pushed in. Some of these caves were actual locations in Jamaica, and some are sets built by Sid Kane back at Pinewood. Now let's hear from Yafit Koto on how he approached making his character more menacing. And I think when someone is being kind and smiling and there's a lot of danger around, then that's even more menacing than someone who's, who's purposely trying to be menacing and purposely trying to be evil. So there was a lot of kindness and, and quietness and gentleness in the way that, that Dr. Kananger carried himself. In fact, when he captures Bond towards the end of the film, and, and he's with Solitaire, and he says, oh, Mr. Bond, welcome. He has a glass of champagne. He's being very charming. He's not saying that you're going to die. He's saying, welcome. I'm glad you came to have a drink with me. I want to show you around my pleasant place and all the rest of it. So to play that role, that part, it with seriousness, I think would defeat the whole, the whole attack on James Bond. I think all the characters of James Bond should always be charming because Bond is charming, and you want to out-charm him. That's the thing. These characters should have, or have to have, or have had in the past, kindness with Mr. Bond. And they're always a sort of 
gentleness because he's going to try and swarm you. I think that's what bothers them, the fact that he's so cool and he's, he's so suave and they, and they know his reputation. So before they kill him, they're going to show him how suave and cool they are. It's unfortunate that your wetsuit was discovered only minutes before... Back to Guy Hamilton. Don't tell me you're not insured. Here we got um, a magic gun, show you what it does on a sofa. Now, wouldn't it be fun what would happen if you had Whisper, who's got... doesn't say anything, but at least he's rather large and fat. What would happen if the gun hit him and uh, he became like a Michelin man and blew up that way? Yafet Koto worked hard to make Dr. Kananga a memorable Bond villain. In this scene, there's a nice comic element of Kananga quickly losing a grip. He seems torn between wanting Bond to be his friend and wanting Bond dead. Koto explains how he approached the role and tried to make it different than other Bond villains. Well, the, the difference between Dr. Kananga was that I decided that he was also a fan of, of James Bond. And so having, having felt that way, he was going to be as suave and as cool and as elegant than Bond, because he was obviously jealous of Bond. So he was going to outdo Bond in everything that Bond did. He was going to wear better clothes than Bond. He was going to be cooler than Bond. He was going to ship champagne better than Bond. He had better women than Bond. So the attack that I took on the role is Dr. Kananger saw himself as someone who was a, a social competitor with James Bond. This sequence was artfully parodied in the first Austin Powers film, but like all good film scenes, the parody does nothing to diminish the fun of the original. Mankiewicz and Hamilton have piled on all the elements here. We have a Fu Manchu-style slow death machine, a tank of sharks, an underground cave, and a sadistic villain who can't be contented with just shooting 007. Bond, whose watch failed him with the alligators, has better luck when faced with sharks. Hamilton and Mankiewicz have a clever cheat that the audience can't wait to see. Bond's watch turning into a buzzsaw. something in an even simpler vein. On the contrary, Mr. Bond. I think a small note, when Bond flips off the transport device, the stuntman is Vic Armstrong, who has moved on to second unit director on the Bond films Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough. The other actor in the scene is Earl Jolly Brown, who got the part at the suggestion of Yafik Koto. I always had a running joke with uh, the guy who played Whisper because that, he, he did whisper in, in life. And I, I had mentioned him to uh, Guy Hamilton that I, I have a guy that's perfect for the role because he goes around whispering like that all the time. Gloria Hendry remembers Earl Jolly Brown. Earl Jolly Brown had done a movie with me called Black Belt Jones. He was in that with, with me also. He was a stunt person too, Jolly Brown. His name is very fitting. He's jolly. He's like jolly... Santa Claus in Technicolor. Wonderful person, loving. I, I'm remembering those rosy cheeks. I remember the full face. He is jolly. 
And now Julius Harris on Jolly Brown and his exit from the film. Sally, well, he did, he did the job he had to do. You understand me? He was a nice person. He was a journeyman. He knew what the hell he was. He wanted and he was doing it. When he got swallowed up in that, in that tomb, man, that scared the hell out of him because they had to do a couple of takes already. He, he didn't realize what he, what he was getting into, you know. But uh, he took care of business. And now Yafit Koto on his death scene. The end of the movie, where I knew that my character was going to get his comeuppance, was I had a lot of mixed feelings about that because it, you can't, if you're involved in a Bond film as an actor, there's a part of you that's involved in it as well. So when you read the end of the script, and if you've been telling yourself how cool you are through the whole movie, if you find, if you read how an inglorious a way that you're going to get it, you can't like it, even though you have to do it. And then when you walk down on the set and you see them building this big balloon of you that is going to rush up into the air and explode, you know, and the, the, the Bond's line is, well, he always had an inflated opinion about himself, didn't he? Is that all, you take that personally. I took it personally. Where's Kananga? Well, he always did have an inflated opinion of himself. Now back to Guy Hamilton. There's always uh, a tag to a Bond movie. The, the movie is now over, and it's goodbye, goodbye. Bond and girl get together, and there's always got to be a bon bouche at the a little tag at the end. And we've forgotten. I mean, all the villains are dead as far as the audience can remember, and they forget that there's one still lying around. Now, the first thing to learn in playing Jim Rally is to never take a card from the exposed pile unless you really need it. Jim. James, what are you doing? Just testing an old adage. Unlucky at cards. Back to Guy Hamilton's last scene, which in every Bond film he directed takes place on a moving vehicle. In Hamilton's first Bond film, 007 faces Goldfinger on the president's private jet. In Diamonds Are Forever, Bond fights the villain's henchman on a luxury liner at the end of the movie. Here, Hamilton uses a train. In Hamilton's last Bond film, The Man with the Golden Gun, the final tag comes on a Chinese junk. On each successive film, Hamilton takes more liberties with the comedy, as with this scene, where Teehee's preparations for his attack all seem like romantic gestures to solitaire. Bob Simmons rehearsed it. It was very difficult for Teehee having to use, conceal his real arm 
and at the same time manipulate the claws. It's coitus interruptus, that's what it's all about. What is worrisome is that Roger has to be very careful not to pull the prop arm off. But I know there's no chance of that any longer. Just to be able to reach out and touch you. Julius Harris remembers preparing for this sequence. When we had to fight the train, we him and I rehearsed that whole thing together. We didn't want any stuntmen because it's impossible to double me. No problem with him. But we had a good time with that one. This scene is the second train fight in a Bond film. The most famous is the fight in From Russia With Love between Sean Connery and Robert Shaw. Trains play a large part in From Russia With Love, The Spy Who Loved Me, Octopussy, and GoldenEye. Now let's go back to Guy Hamilton for one last comment about making Teehee's arm work in this fight sequence. The important thing is, is the insert twice of um, the alleged mechanism because the audience will start to think, oh, it's just a little thing and he's got his arm, you know, stuck in it and he's hanging on. But if you show that mechanism, that uh, confuses the issue. Hamilton and Mankiewicz put in a nice touch here by having Bond kill Teehee by his own weapon, which is a theme for henchmen's deaths in the Bond films. In Goldfinger, Oddjob dies reaching for his deadly hat. And in The Spy Who Loved Me, Jaws is disabled because Bond attaches a magnet to his lethal metal teeth. It is a good touch to have Teehee's arm hanging off the window after Bond tosses him out, and it sets up Bond's final quip beautifully. Disarming, darling. Originally, filmmakers thought they might want to bring Jeffrey Holder back in the next Bond film, which is why he appears here at the end, a good moment for the god of the undead. I would like to thank all those actors and crew members from Live and Let Die who are heard on this audio commentary. I would also like to pay tribute to those who helped gather this material, particularly Mark Cowan, Lee Pfeiffer, Mark Cerulli, Paul Scrabo, George Ann Mueller, and the Ian Fleming Foundation Archives. This audio commentary was produced by David Naylor and Bruce Sively. This is John Cork of the Ian Fleming Foundation. This is the end of Live and Let Die, but James Bond will return in the special edition of The Man with the Golden Gun. Say live and let die.